0: Good morning. It was, I'm an astronaut ladybug in that photograph. And there's a story behind that, and nobody cares anymore. They just want to laugh at me, which I'm good for it, you know. So the story actually is, and if you don't care, it's too bad, I'm going to tell you anyway. The last baptism we did was like a couple months earlier in the season, and at least that's my story. And the water was deep and cold. And uh, we, were, we, I don't know, we baptized like 25 people. And so Roger and I were in the water the whole time. And if you saw Roger, he was going into hypothermia, okay? He was just uncontrollably shaking. And, uh, and then I remember I started to shake. I couldn't stop. And my feet lost all sensation. And I went home and I got in a hot shower and, oh, my feet just ached. And as they were coming to, it's like, why can't that be a good thing? <laughs> it's like, got to be a miserable thing. So, But it took forever to get the feeling back in my feet. So anyway, we thought, what we'll do is we'll get wetsuits and dry suits. And then the water was warm, and we went to the shallow water. And I, it was totally intended to mock me, I think. And whatever. We're in Matthew 16. So let me get my stuff up there for you. A little cooler today, huh? Yeah. A little break from the heat. For your convenience, uh, uh, parents with small children, and you're trying to wrangle them during the service, I will have the text of Scripture in front of you. Uh, But if you don't have small children in your lap or next to you, you better have your Bible. Okay? All right. Yeah. Uh, So just, uh, I just want you guys to join me in prayer. Um, Calvary Chapel, Kelso, Longview, which is, um, I can never tell if it's Calvary Chapel, Kelsey or Longview, but uh, they just lost their pastor. A good friend of mine, uh, Pastor Al Frederick, died Monday night unexpectedly. Uh, we were gearing up to go down to have lunch with Pastor Al and a bunch of the other Calvary Chapel guys in the area, and his son texted me and said that Pal, uh, Al passed in the night. And so his, his wife woke up, and he was gone. And um, so no rhyme or reason. Um, nobody knows what happened. Uh, he was only 63. Uh, he was doing great. and uh, So I want to pray for Elaine, his, his wife, uh, his kids, and then that, that fellowship, that body of believers. So we'll do that today. Um, so why don't we first uh, stand for the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 16, verse 1 through 12. Back to false teachers and their teaching. You remember, right, Jesus was in Gentile territory to get away from the Pharisees. And uh, as soon as he comes back, they're standing on the seashore waiting for him with their arms folded and their boxing gloves on. It says, then the Pharisees and Sadducees came and, testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said to them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet. And he left them and departed. Now when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It's because we have taken no bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, O you little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up, nor the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many baskets you took up? How is it you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, But to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your instruction, Lord. And um, we thank you for the example of Christ um, in the context of false teachers and false teaching. We need to hear it. We need to practice it. So help us, Lord, I pray. And Lord, I also pray that um, you would be with Elaine and, Lord, the family and the family of God there at Calvary Chapel in Kelso Longview. Lord, what a sudden and crazy vacancy. But Lord, I thank you that Pastor Al was an outstanding shepherd who, without even knowing it by your spirit, was preparing his flock for his departure. And so, Lord, I trust that you will look after those precious people, that you will walk closely with Elaine and encourage her heart. And um, so, Lord, just do what you do best—love and tend your sheep. I pray in Jesus' name, Amen. All right, good and be seated. Well, let's take a closer look at what's happening here, and then we'll we'll venture off into the epistles as we. Uh, see the apostles doing exactly what Jesus does uh, here in this very similar context. So remember, he's uh, he's come to the shores of, of Magdala there, in the region of Magdala, and uh, it says, immediately, then the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. Now, the last time we saw these guys, the disciples had pointed out to Jesus as if he was unaware that the Pharisees were offended by what Jesus said to them. You remember, he, he accused them of uh, basically putting a stumbling block in front of other people so that they would violate the command of God to honor your father and mother. Uh, they had been doing it themselves. And uh, Jesus pointed that out and said that you're worthy of death because of this, according to the law. And, uh, and he called them hypocrites, uh, it was a very robust conversation. And so n- these guys have not come to Jesus on friendly terms. Uh, this is retribution. Okay? They, they're very vindictive. And the whole encounter here is interesting for a number of reasons. To begin with, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they weren't exactly friends. They're not friendly with one another uh, their relationship is much like the polarization that we see between the political parties in uh, our nation right now. A lot of name-calling, a lot of accusing, and just it's just a complete mess. But here we see them together for a single cause. Why? Well, because Jesus is a, a potential problem for both of them. For both of them. Uh, to the Pharisees, Jesus was basically a rival uh, he's been challenging, he's been attacking their interpretation of the Scriptures, their exercise of the Scriptures, and he's been drawing people away from them and to himself, which is robbing the Pharisees of the fame and the popularity, uh, all of the, the attention that they were so used to, and, by the way, that they believed they deserved. Okay? To the Sadducees, Jesus is more of a, a political and you know financial problem. This was the aristocracy of Israel, wealthy people. And the, the problem here is, is that the wealth that they enjoyed was only secure as far as the relationship with Rome was good. Well, Jesus came on the scene as the Messiah of Israel. And to the Jew, he is nothing but a competing emperor striving for the throne of empire. And if that kind of knowledge gets to Rome or to the Roman authorities in the area, it would do nothing but stir their wrath, and of course that would destabilize all that the Sadducees enjoy. So Jesus is just, he's a problem. Okay? And so the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they have a common enemy, and it would benefit both sides if they could just get rid of him. So they've joined forces, to test him, okay? Now, Jesus, as we know, he's recently embarrassed the Pharisees publicly, accusing, demonstrating all kinds of heresy and falsehood, correcting their theology. So the nature of this test, it's not, of course, it's not a positive thing. The, the Pharisees the Sadducees they never brought anything positive. Anyway, this is a trap. They want to uh, publicly humiliate him. And they want to destroy his... Reputation among the people. And their request to show them a sign from heaven is interesting, not only because, you know, Jesus has already been performing signs, hundreds and hundreds of signs, healing people, just so many things. The real funny thing here is that these men ascribe, they appeal to the authority of scripture, and yet asking a prophet for a sign has no grounds in Scripture. It's interesting, huh? Yeah, God himself, uh, you know, he instructs his prophets to show signs, to, you know, verify their office, their authority to the people. But I can't find any instruction from God, especially in his law, uh, telling his people to ask a prophet for a sign to prove themselves. Uh, There is a place where uh, King Hezekiah, you know, he's dying, and Hezekiah, or Isaiah says, you'll live. And Hezekiah's like, whoa, 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 whoa! <laughs> how, do I, how do I know? And so he asks Isaiah for a sign to confirm that uh, he will be healed, and then he gets this great sign. It's 2 Kings 19.29 and recorded in Isaiah 38.22. But this is very different from requesting a sign from a prophet to verify his calling. It's actually the other way around in Scripture. Deuteronomy 13, which we visited earlier in Matthew 7, it actually instructs God's people that if someone is performing signs and wonders, they shouldn't evaluate the signs and wonders, they should evaluate the teaching. Interesting, huh? Evaluate the teaching. If the person's teaching passes the test of orthodoxy, the miracles he performs just further demonstrates their legitimacy. Our primary concern is always, always truth as it corresponds with the Word of God. Amen? Always. Even if, uh, when it comes to uh, discerning spirits, John says that we evaluate them based upon what they teach, what they profess, or what they do not profess. It was interesting, ever since the time of Christ, and I would say even more so today, people are after signs and wonders. And what they do is they think in their mind, well, if this person can perform signs or wonders, whatever they say must be true. You get it? And so you have these movements all over the U.S., all over South America and Africa especially, of this seeking after signs, and then if, if the person can perform signs, or at least give the appearance of performing signs, they think, well, that person is legit. Instead of looking to the scriptures and understanding the truth of God's word and then testing the prophet according to that, they look after signs. We're so into doing the very opposite of what the scriptures teach. The proof is in the pudding and what is taught. Amen? It has to correspond with scripture. So prophets, teachers, and spirits from God, they always speak the truth of God's word. They never stray from it, especially in the scriptures. Well, false prophets, teachers, false spirits always stray from the fundamentals of the faith. So we have Jesus. He's come on the scene. He's exalting the word of God. He's affirming its truth. He's upholding its authority, its inspiration, its sufficiency. And then he was performing signs and wonders, which just further verify his identity as the Son of God. So this test from the religious leaders was an illegitimate test. It's very strange. And it was just intended to sabotage. So Jesus responds to them. He answered and said, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. So apparently they weren't just the religious leaders of Israel, they were also their meteorologists. And so by the appearance of the sky they would call the weather. Now in Luke's account, uh, Jesus confesses, you even do a pretty good job. Yeah, but before they could pat themselves on the the back Jesus drops the mic and uh, leaves, but not before he, u- he uses the H word again. And this time he includes the Sadducees. He says, you hypocrites. Now again, this word does not refer to someone who says one thing and does another, as we talked about. Okay, Remember in chapter 15, these Pharisees were teaching the people a way to dishonor their father and mother, and they were doing the same. So they were saying and doing the same thing. So that's not really the way that we use the word hypocrite, right? The Jews use the word to speak of someone who's wicked, someone who pretends to be holy, someone who pretends to be pious, but their motives and their heart is corrupt. They're filled with pride and self-will. And so these wicked men could interpret the weather, but they could not interpret the signs of the times, even though... This is what's so crazy, is that was one of their primary responsibilities as the leadership of Israel, especially at this time in history. Jesus, in chapter 15, called them blind guides, blind to the signs of the times, and specifically to the identity of the Messiah. Now, we can't forget that you know, Jesus was the sign of the times, right? He was the sign of the times, He was working miracles. He was exercising authority over demons and nature. He was fulfilling prophecy after prophecy. These guys couldn't see it. And they came to sabotage the work of God. It's crazy. They were hypocrites. They were evil. So, you know, you want to know why people can't see Jesus for who he is? You think, well, they don't just, they just don't have enough knowledge. They just haven't been informed enough. They haven't, no, it's because the heart is corrupted they're blinded by it. It, it, It's not because Christianity, the scriptures, and the gospels, you know, fail to stand under scrutiny. Uh, History has proven that the scriptures stand. Amen? They stand. It's because people, as the psalmist says, they drink in iniquity like water. It's not a problem of the mind. It's a problem of the heart. They're blinded by sin. So Jesus isn't done. He says, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah, and he left them and departed. So rebuke and mic drop, right? He accuses them of being wicked and adulterous, and then he walks off. So here it is. People say, God, just give me a sign from heaven. Who seeks after signs? What's the text say? I didn't say it. I didn't say it. Jesus says, I'll tell you who it is that seeks after a sign from heaven. It's it's the wicked. It's the adulterous people. That's who asks for a sign. He's saying it's the people like you who refuse to take God at his word as it's found in the scriptures and the prophecies that are fulfilled in history and just the simple truth of the gospel. It, it's the wicked and adulterous. Now, I think we all know what wicked means, evil, bad, nefarious. But here, by the feminine word for adulteress, he's not talking about those who are unfaithful to their husbands, but to those who are unfaithful to God. Um, These are guilty of spiritual adultery. Jesus is accusing them of having no fidelity when it comes to their relationship with God and his word. Their commitments lied elsewhere, and yet... They're the ones demanding a sign from Jesus. And Jesus says to them, I will accommodate no such request from such people, none. The only sign available to them is the same one that is available to everyone. Not because anyone asked for it, but because this is the sign that was appointed by his father. And it's the sign of Jonah, okay? Now these guys, remember, they've already asked Jesus for a sign back in Matthew 12, But in Matthew 12, Jesus gave them the sign and gave them some explanation. He doesn't do that here, so apparently he expected them to listen the first time. The sign of the prophet Jonah, he says, is this. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This is the interesting thing about referring back to a historical event as being a sign just the way that God can sovereignly weave whatever he wants into history. Okay? This very unique event from the life of Jonah, where he was swallowed by a large fish and then puked out three days later, God divinely embedded that in Jonah's experience in order to foreshadow the death and resurrection of Christ. So listen, if something weird happens in your life, that seems way out of the the ordinary, God might be using it for something, okay? So just be patient. Be patient. It was meant by God to typify what would happen in the future. So Jonah's experience of going into the belly of the fish for three days and three nights was a sign that pointed forward to Christ who would spend three days, three nights in the grave. And just as Jonah emerged from the fish's belly, Jesus vacated the tomb. And Jesus tells these religious hypocrites that the only sign they'll get is the sign of Jonah. He says, I will not accommodate you in any way at all. Now listen, if Jesus did not have to accommodate a religious hypocrite in any way at all, guess what obligation you have to them? Zero. Zero. That's right. These guys will indirectly be witnesses of the sign of Jonah, not because they asked for it, but because... God called for it. You remember Jesus says, this commandment my father has given to lay my life down and then to take it back again. It was a command from his father. That's great. You know what's crazy? The sign of Jonah is the sign of signs and it always will be the sign of signs. You look at every sermon in the book of Acts, the resurrection is mentioned. It's the sign of signs. Okay? It's the sign for the seeker. It's the sign for the skeptic. It's the sign for the Muslim. It's the sign for the Hindu. It's the sign for the agnostic, the deist, and the atheist. It's the sign of signs for everyone. You get it? It's, it's the one. Paul put it this way. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. But then he goes on. And that he was, he was seen by Cephas, that's Peter, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due season. So Paul, like Jesus, was saying that the sign of signs is the sign of Jonah, that Jesus died for our sins and he rose again. And and the death of Christ wasn't some random event that was finished off with some grandiose miracle called the resurrection. The death and resurrection of Jesus was divinely premeditated before the beginning of history. Revelation 13.8, Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world, and it was witnessed by hundreds of people, most of which were still alive when Paul wrote his epistle to the Corinthians. So the thought there is, Paul says, if you don't believe me, you can go talk to the witnesses. Okay, It's not just me, it's the 12, and it's over 500 more people. The death the resurrection. Paul says to the Romans that the issue of Jesus's identity was settled by the resurrection. He says and he was declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness, how? By the resurrection from the dead. That is the sign of signs. Jesus wasn't just one of the prophets. He wasn't just a good moral teacher. He he's he's not to be reduced to any of those things. Understand? Not a a good moral example. He wasn't a social justice warrior. That's real common theology today. Jesus, above all else, is the Son of God, who died and rose from the dead. So the sign of Jonah, that's what you get, he said. And then he walked off. He left the Pharisees. So let's go with him. Let's leave the Pharisees and go with Jesus. Now, when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Take heed and beware. That is, look out, be watchful, be on your guard for the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. What in the world is the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Now, we've read ahead already. But, you know, the first thing that would come to mind if you hadn't read ahead, even though it didn't come to mind to the Apostles, is that in the scriptures, leaven is a symbol of sin and pride. So it, my mind would naturally go, well, beware of the, the sin and the pride of the Pharisees. But what did Jesus mean by it? The boys, they discussed this among themselves and said, it's because we didn't bring any bread. Well, whatever Jesus meant by leaven, the disciples thought they were in trouble for not bringing lunch. Okay, I'm not sure how they could think that the leaven of the Pharisees had anything to do with their next meal, but that's what they came up with. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, "O oh, you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you brought no bread?" So even if Jesus was alluding to their absent-mindedness about the bread, why, why, why would they fret over food? This is nothing but a deficiency of faith. That's what he's saying. He says, "Do you not understand? Yet understand or remember?" The five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up, nor the seven loaves or the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up. The real question is, why would you ever bring food again if you were with Jesus? And if you were with Jesus, why would you ever worry about it? He says, do you not yet understand? Don't you remember? What do you have to worry about when Jesus is your shepherd? Didn't he teach that in the Sermon on the Mount? How could they be so unbelieving so quickly after he fed so many with so many leftovers? Well, aren't we guilty of the same? We deserve the same rebuke, I think, quite often. God has promised us to provide all of our needs according to his riches. And mind you, the first demonstration of his riches was Jesus. And then he promises to care for us through Christ, this great provision. Why do we worry about such things? You know, as, as I look out in the congregation, I can see that you are richer than most people in all of the world. How many of you guys have been to a third world country? A bunch of you? How many think you fare well compared to them? I hope so. Okay. You, you have more food, clothing, and luxuries... The fact that you have a car and multiple shoes demonstrates that your material wealth is way beyond the majority of people in the world. How many of you guys have two cars? Three cars? Four cars? Let's just stop. <laughs> Our problem in America is not how little we have, but how much we think we should have. Okay? We have no idea what necessities really are. Compared to the rest of the world, we are materially wealthy The question for us is, are we rich in faith? And I'm afraid the only thing that will answer that question is a recession in our economy. Regardless of how much or how little faith we have, we we have to remember it's never going to change God's faithfulness. Amen? Because he can't contradict himself. He is faithful, Paul says. Back to our story. He said, how is it you do not understand... That he did not speak to you concerning bread, but to be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. All right, now we're getting to it. Yeah, the word doctrine simply refers to what is taught, to what is instructed, it's teaching. It was their teaching, it was the instruction of the Pharisees and the Sadducees that the boys were to look out for and stay away from. Look out for it, stay away from it. Now, you remember how at the beginning we talked about how God's people are to evaluate prophets, teachers, and spirits. You remember? It's not by the miracles they perform, but by what they teach. Jesus didn't say, hey, watch out for the signs, the wonders and miracles of the Pharisees, okay? He says look out for their teaching. Jesus stood by Deuteronomy 13 and the principle that we see in Isaiah 8:20 which says this, to the law and the testimony if they do not speak according to this word it is because there's no light in them. That's a good word right there. To the law and the testimony if they do not speak according to this word it is because there's no light in them. If what they teach is not according to the scriptures There's no light in them. They're just filled with darkness. So the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they're dangerous. They're dangerous people because of what they taught. Their traditions were leading people away from God and his word. And and that's exactly why Jesus came down so hard on them in chapter 15. He was like a a fire extinguisher to a flame. A false doctrine from Jesus' perspective had to be put out and... The people of God should avoid those who teach it, okay? So from chapter 7 to chapter 15, and now to chapter 16, we've come full circle on this subject of false teachers and false teaching. It it was in chapter 7 that Jesus warned the people about false teachers in the Sermon on the Mount, okay? Now that sermon was to the, the people that were following him. In chapter 15, Jesus confronted the false teachers for their false teaching, and their dangerous practices. And here in chapter 16, Jesus tells his little flock to beware of false teaching and to stay clear of them. There's education, there's confrontation, and then there's avoidance. The chief shepherd knows how to pastor his people. Amen? A good shepherd educates his flock about the dangers of false teachers. He confronts false teachers when they're a danger to his flock. He identifies False teachers for his flock, and he steers his flock away from them. Okay? And Jesus' example of confronting false teachers was followed by the apostles. He was raising up shepherds, right? He was raising them up. Peter confronted Simon in Acts 8 there in Samaria. Paul confronted a false prophet named Bar Jesus in, in Paphos, Acts 13. Paul even confronted Peter when he strayed in his example, which denied the grace of God, in Galatians chapter 2. Paul, because of false teaching, he disfellowsh- disfellowshipped Alexander, Hymenaeus, and Philetus, First Timothy one twenty, and Second 2 Timothy 2.18. So if you can't avoid them, you get rid of them. You get it? Despair the flock. Okay? The apostles also educated the church about false teaching and, and, and teachers, telling them to identify them and avoid them. They kind of listened, didn't they, to Jesus? Paul says, now I urge you, I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. Uh, To mark means to keep your eye on them, to keep a lookout for them. They're a danger, and their whereabouts and what they're up to should be monitored, should be monitored but we should stay clear of them. So be, beware of danger and avoid it. Paul goes on to say in chapter 16 here that these people do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ. He says they actually serve their own belly, their own appetites. He says they're deceivers who are doing the work of Satan, whom Christ intends to crush under his feet. Can't wait for that. Early in church history, the apostles, you remember, they gathered together to rid the church of old covenant things, not necessarily Old Testament literature things, truths of God and so forth, but the covenant itself, things that did not pertain to the new covenant, like circumcision and the legal system of Moses, Acts 15, 24. So very early in church history, they said, we got to get together, we got to clear this up, because there's Jewish Christians out there trying to get Gentiles circumcised and to keep other things in the law of Moses that that just are not a part of the new covenant. So they cleared it up. Paul, he commissions the elders of the church to confront false teachers. He says that an elder must hold fast the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine to exhort and convict those who contradict. Well, why would an elder need to do that, Paul? Because there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers especially those of the circumcision, that's the Jews, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. Because God has called elders to be the guardians of doctrine, and they are those who are to protect the flock from danger. Paul warned the believers of Galatia about embracing even a different version of the gospel, which he says is no gospel at all. Those other so-called gospels do not save people, but he says they condemn them. He said to the, the, the believers of Galatia, he says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there's some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, this is what Joseph Smith and Muhammad should have paid attention to, that even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be anathema in the Greek, condemned, accursed. So, too often, you guys, the danger of false teaching is underestimated by God's people. Do you know that the number one convert to the LDS Church is evangelical Christians? They've underestimated the danger. That they're not educated in the scriptures. Okay, miss. Guided tolerance and patience, you guys, they're trendy in the church today when it comes to false teaching. But when we look at Christ, his teaching, the apostles, and theirs, there's just, there's just no room for it. There's no hint of that. They didn't put up with it. it. It's spiritually mature, of course, to be tolerant and patient in the proper context. But when it comes to heresy and heretics, the scriptures absolutely forbid it. Paul says, we gave no room for them speaking to the Galatians. Yeah. Now, to be clear, when we're talking about false teachers, false teaching, we're not talking about young believers who are, you know, growing in their understanding of the truth of the word, their understanding of God. We're not talking about those that are simply misinformed and then misspeak. Those are people growing in their understanding. We're in the middle of instructing them and helping them Okay. We're talking about those who are trying to advance something contrary to the truth of God's Word, that which contradicts and confuses the gospel of grace. They're trying to evangelize uh, God's people by leading them to their camp. Th- these are deceivers, uh, that trying to turn people from the truth. You know, false teachers, they, they have an agenda. Have you ever noticed that? They have an agenda. The Mormon Church, the Jehovah's Witnesses, Islam... You know, most of the messianic movement, a host of others, fit into the camp of those who have an agenda to lead people into their thing, okay? There should be no tolerance for what they teach. All of them, all of them without exception, deny the grace of Christ and they offer a different gospel. And Paul, he's very clear about an alternative gospel and the fruit of it. I realize it's controversial, partly because there's so many in Lewis County, but the Seventh-day Adventist Church denies the gospel of grace okay, by its insistence on keeping the law and Sabbath-keeping, dietary regulations, and its false doctrine of what they call the investigative judgment, which is both bizarre and completely heretical. Now, I, I'm, I don't consider myself an old man, and neither do you, But I've been around a little bit, I've engaged with people, and whenever I've engaged with serious Adventists, their primary, their number one concern is to get me to keep Sabbath rather than to love Jesus and obey him. The same thing with all the other groups out there. Jesus and his teaching is not the primary thing in what they advance, but it's something that Joseph Smith advanced. It's something that Ellen G. White advanced. It's something that one of their teachers, their leaders, pushed. And that's how I immediately know that it's a false teacher. Okay, Immediately. And any time Jesus is a side note or an afterthought in someone's theology or philosophy, there is no merit in the primary thought. None. Okay, Their theology is a distraction. Listen to what Paul said to the Colossians. Believers, please pay attention to the emphasis on Jesus. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of deity in bodily form. And you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. By the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which also you were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, referring to the law of Moses, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So let no one judge you in food, or in drink, or regarding a festival, a new moon, or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. Christ is the center of all of our theology and his gospel. He's no side note. He's no afterthought. He is all in all. And if God has given him the preeminence, he must be foremost in all of our teaching and all of our practice. It's him. It's his teaching. It's his example that we must conform to. And if he educated the church about false teaching and false teachers, if he confronted them, and if he told the church to look out for them and avoid them, I'm going to do the same. Amen? You know, Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.15 that the church of the living God, has been fashioned to be the pillar and the ground of the truth. So we must acquaint ourselves with the word of Christ. Amen? We must become practitioners of it. That's why we, we, we devote so much of our time to here at Calvary Chapel, so that when you look out there, you can put your finger on it and say, no, it does not exalt Christ, it does not conform to his word. So I'm going I'm to identify it and I'm going to stay away from it, okay? And if it gets too close, you confront it, all right? And uh, if you aren't comfortable doing it, I would love to, okay? And my elders would love to, and it's our responsibility, amen? All right, go ahead and stand up. We'll pray, get you out of here. Well, Lord Jesus, we, we love you. We thank you, Lord, that your, your interest was our best interest, that you had us in mind, when you taught, when you lived, when you died, when you rose again, and now at the right hand of the Father, you make intercession for us. Lord, it's, it's, it's to you, your, your word, Lord, that we, we must heed, we must give our attention. So Lord, I pray for, for Calvary Chapel, my church family, that, Lord, that you would just give them a hunger and a thirst for your word, that they would feed on it, Lord, they would be nurtured by it, acquainting themselves with it so they might use it, Lord, both to protect and to defend, to identify. Lord, please protect us and help us to be diligent, Lord, in the Word so that we just, we know what's up. So, Lord, thank you. We love you. And uh, it is our pleasure to worship you. In Jesus' name, Amen. amen.